well for you. That's not like a threat. I don't get to do that. Um, but uh, my hope is that we are a people formed and shaped by God's word. And not just good advice or good direction, but the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so... Um, if you would, turn your Bibles uh, to um, Genesis chapter 1, because it, the reality is when we place ourselves first, we write bad stories. But when God and Jesus Christ, our creator, is first, he draws us to a bigger story that spans all of history, eternity, the universe, and he's a God who knows each and every one of our individual stories and is with us in the sorrows and ultimately leads us to joy. See, his story, Jesus' story, he tells us in Luke 24, the whole Bible is about him, can really be distilled down into four words. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And so let's just, let's just start with the beginning, because if I don't stick to the notes, um, we're going to be here um, for like till next week. Um, and so here we are. We're going to get Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. In the beginning, God. Okay, let's stop. In the beginning, God. If, if, that means that before we think of any beginnings, it can't be in the beginning you, it can't be in the beginning me, it can't be in the beginning anybody else, but the God who is the God of all beginnings. The God who then says creates the heaven and the earth. That there is a God who is a creator. He's eternal. That we have to understand this character, if you will, in the story, otherwise we're going to get the whole story wrong. So to know God, to know some key attributes of God, is to start with three quick things. God is powerful, God is wise, and God is good. See, God being powerful, that's, as Christians we use the word sovereign, right? Being a king over all things that we need to, un to be reminded that because God is all-powerful, we can trust that he's able to do all things necessary to accomplish his purposes. Because God is all wise, that means all knowing, it means that we can trust that he knows what to do in all circumstances. That, can we just be frank that most of us don't have a proper perspective on the world? And I say proper, we all have our own perspective. But the God who creates all things, being all-knowing and all-wise, has the perfect perspective of all of history. And again, that gets big, but, but where I want it to be personal and where it needs to be personal is you need to know God has the perfect perspective on your life, what you're going through, the highs and the lows. Because God is wise, we can trust that he knows what to do in all circumstances. And then finally, God is good. That God is loving. I'm going to tie loving and good together because I want us to be a people with the foundation that God is the one who defines what is loving and good. That because God is good, he tells us what is loving. He is trustworthy to act with perfect justice, perfect mercy, perfect grace. He defines goodness. That, that you cannot actually define goodness apart from a good God. Because otherwise you're going to move that needle back to your own internal morality or cultural winds that blow. Because God is good and loving, we can trust that God will do what is right. 
So we have to be reminded that if you, you take one of those away, right? God can be good and, and wise, but, but impotent, like not powerful. I don't, that's not a good God. God could be um, all, all powerful and have really, really good intentions, but if he has no wisdom, then what's the use? And then finally, if, if God is powerful and God is wise, but he's not good, that's terrifying. That, that, that's, that's terrifying. So what you believe about this main character is going to determine how you view the rest of the story. See, uh, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then if you skip ahead to verse uh, 26 and 28, we see that, that we're in this story. You and I, all of humanity is in this story. It says this, 26, 27, 28. And God said, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over the earth, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. He said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, every living thing that moves on the earth. So we're in the story, but we're not, I don't want to say, we're not the hero. We, we are created beings. We're created with a purpose. We're created for a purposeful God. And it starts first that he has, he has made us in his image and likeness. The yes, in the Bible, even it'll talk about, you know, like on wings of eagles. And it'll talk about, you know, different, different animals, about attributes of God. But when it talks about who God is in his likeness and image, that is reserved specifically for us as humans, for you and I, for our children, for our parents, for this, everyone out in this world. Everyone is an image bearer of God. And he's, he even sets up a hierarchy of creation order. Men and women at the top, like of the actual, I'll just say food chain, which is why, like, a grilled cow is a great meal and a grilled person's a great tragedy. See, we intrinsically know this. We intrinsically know this, but we, we lose this at points. He also says male and female, both made in the image and likeness of God, both blessed, both called to multiply, both called to be unique and distinct as men and women and yet equal in value before God. And there's a whole another sermon that this needs to, to be talked about. But it's important that you know that God made men and women equal in his image because you'll get to points in the story where you'll see men being abusive to women, where you'll see women being manipulative to men. And then now here we are in our story today. I say today, meaning like really the last three, four, five years culturally. And we've lost this basic understanding that God creates people, male and female. You'll get distorted, you'll get confused, and you'll miss parts of the story. He says to be fruitful and multiply, to be productive and prosper. That's verse 28. We are made for a purpose to fill the earth. And, and, and like God made this garden. And he says, hey, you're going to live in the garden, but my plan for you, humanity, is to turn the rest of the world into a garden. That there's wilderness out there to be tamed. That there are fields to cultivate. That there are rivers to divert. That there are cities to build. That there is culture to create. There are songs to be sung. There are paintings to be made. There are meals to be made. 
All of those things mirroring the image of our God who is a creator. That everything that is delightful and beautiful about the world, everything that we love that's creative and good, that is reflecting God who is a creator. So we're like, all right, this sounds good. Let's go. This, is, this sounds awesome. They're in the garden. You know, they're, they're naked and unashamed. Be fruitful, multiply. What could go wrong? Like, this is a, this is a big book. And, and like, things are only really, really good with no sin for like, from here to here. It doesn't, it doesn't last. And that's a tragedy, but it's true. And we know this, that that brings us to number two, right? The fall. That if creation was created good, the fall is bad. That humanity chose to reject God's rule, his reign as a king, his purposes for their lives, the communion that we have with God. And it led to spiritual death. It led to physical death. It led to relational death. And we see this right here in Genesis 3 says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we we can eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you'll not surely die. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good, knowing evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and there was a light in the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. And she gave some to her husband who were with her and he ate. So in this story with a good creative God and and the humanity that he's made, there is a villain in the story and it enters as a serpent and Revelation 12 actually talks about that, the ancient serpent who's called the devil, Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. That before you get too freaked out, it's not multiple gods. It's not yin and yang fighting one another. These aren't co-equals going at it like, I don't know how it's going to work out. Satan's a created being. He's a fallen angel. Demon, however you want to say it. And, and yet... It says that he is incredibly crafty. Like, he knows human nature better than we do. He's able to deceive a humanity who's in perfect relationship with God, who has everything provided for, who has perfect purpose, and say, hey, I think you can have the garden without the God. Hey, um, did God's word really say? I mean, Isn't it interesting that Satan begins his attack on a good creator with doubt about God's word? Now, don't hear me wrongly. You got doubts, that's fine. Process them, pray about them, seek God's will, seek God's word. Like, like it's okay to doubt. But to actively have the seeds of doubt sown in a way to undermine God's character. See, again, good, powerful, loving, wise, Here he's like, well, no, 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 God's not good. In fact, he's holding out on you. He knows if you you reject his rule and reign, you'll be like God. We just read, they already were like God. We already are like God, and then we're made in his image and likeness. Don't misquote me. It's not even on the video, so you can't record it, right? I didn't say we're God. We're not taking a weird turn here. 
But he says, you know, if, if you have this, life will be better for you. You will know good and evil. Well, to this point, they've only known good. So they already know good. So, so what's being added then? Evil. That's a bad trade. That's a bad deal. And there's consequences for this, right? The Eve creates legalism. She says, well, no, no, we're not supposed to eat, like we're not supposed to eat of the fruit or, or even touch it lest we'll die. Well, you can read in Genesis 1 and 2, God didn't say you're going to die if you touch it. No, God gave one simple command to display our reliance and our obedience. To be clear, God wasn't like, oh, I wonder when they're going to finally eat that. God wasn't like, ooh, you know what? Let's just give them one rule just for funsies. It's like, no, I just want them to be reminded that I'm the source of their life. That they eat from the tree of, of life. That's from me. And if they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they're just eating of evil. And so Eve is legalistic. The serpent as well says, hey, God says you can't eat any of the trees, Right? I mean, he goes right at God's character saying, God's a limiting God. God doesn't want your joy. God doesn't want your flourishing. Please. He's the one that made the things that are enjoyable. And so, again, you can have the garden without the God. Eve's the one that eats first and is deceived, and she becomes an evangelist of the cult of self. Hey, just, just love yourself perfectly. And she has Adam eat the fruit too. Adam's there. He's there the whole time. He's quiet. Doesn't say a word. He's, he's been taught God's word. Like, where's the discipleship? Where's the two of them, like, like consulting one another? Where are they? Like, they don't go to God's word. They don't go to prayer. They don't even go in gospel community to say, hey, honey, what do you think about this? I don't know, man. This serpent's pretty scary. I don't want to upset you, though. I, I don't know. I don't know. Listen, they had a good marriage and then instantly there is shame, there is separation, and there's a breakdown in respect of one another as image bearers. And we see this result, verses 7 through 19. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So here they are. They're just trying to, just trying to cover up their sin. They're just, all of a sudden, they've been naked and unashamed, and now they're like, hold up. I don't know if I can trust you. I don't know if I want to be my full self with you because I don't know what that's going to do or look like. An immediate breakdown. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees in the garden. So again, like in sin, in rejection of God, they, they, they don't just rebel against God, they run from God. They try to hide from God and, and believe another lie that somehow God doesn't know what's going on. That God didn't see their actions? That God doesn't know their hearts? That, that somehow, oh, let me just I'll put on like a fiddly fig here and maybe hide behind this ficus and I'm sure God's not going to see what's going on. Just like, oh, I'll just close the door. I'll just delete my browser history. I'll just go to this other place and God won't see what's going on. They hid. But God pursues. God calls them out. God is so merciful because he said, if you eat this fruit, it's going to lead to death. And, and God could have just instantly, boom, gone. But instead, the answer to God's answer to our sin 
is God's mercy and God's pursuit of us for the purposes of reestablishing relationship and communion and life. He says, where are you? And he said, well, we heard the sound of you in the garden and we were afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. This is Adam. And God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, well, the woman you gave me, instant blame shifting, right? It's, it's not my fault. It's the woman that you, God, gave me. My problem. I have moments where I don't trust God. Where I think somehow that things aren't going well, God must have gotten it wrong. That if God could have just done it the way I wanted it done, that it would lead to life and flourishing. In those moments, I'm not being faithful, I'm being faithless. And yet God pursues. I mean, God, don't you feel like, I mean, a chapter earlier, God walked Eve down the aisle and they had this beautiful wedding ceremony. And now like father of the bride, he should just, right, just crack him. But he doesn't. So this woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. The Lord said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. No one is taking accountability. No one's saying, God, I've, humbly, we've sinned. God, we know you're powerful, knowledgeable, and good, and loving. God, show us your mercy. And says, the devil made me do it. My family of origin made me do it. My personality made me do it. Systems and structures of oppression made me do it. No one takes accountability. And in this, God says to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head, crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, surely I'll multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. So he's saying, hey, women, like, you're called to participate in being fruitful and multiplying, and now childbirth is going to be painful, and child raising is going to be difficult. There'll be kids you'll pour your whole life into, and they'll break your heart. And as well, your desire shall be for or against, rather, your husband, and he shall rule over you. This isn't saying like, ladies, if you like your husband, then that's part of the curse. What it's saying is that this, this complementary marriage of cooperation is now going to be in conflict. And to the man, he says, hey, your work is no longer going to always be fruitful and productive. Sometimes it's going to be toil. Sometimes thorns and thistles are going to come up. Sometimes there's going to be famine. Sometimes it's going to rain and rain and rain and the roof of your house is going to leak and it's going to rain and rain and rain and roofs all over the place are leaking. Sometimes pipes burst in the church and you're just like, why, God, why? He's like, because it was time to redo that hallway. Oh, okay, good Lord, all right. We'll get on it. That not everything we do is going to be productive. That sometimes we're going to work and we're going to lose our jobs. Sometimes we're going to pour everything we can into a church or a ministry and, and, and God says, you know, it's, it's going to be something different now. Sometimes you're going to 
you're going to paint your house, you're going to remodel, you're going to do all those things, and then somebody else is going to move in later and say, I don't like this at all. What choices do they make? They're going to redo it again. And so, and this result of sin is this brokenness, this separation from God. And yet God immediately shows grace. God immediately shows mercy. Verses 20 through 24 says this. The man called his wife Eve and she became the mother of all living. And the Lord made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. So what you're seeing here right away is God says, hey, your attempts to hide your sin and shame are ineffective. I've got something better for you. And because there's sin against an eternal God, there's going to need to be a sacrifice. So if it says here that God made clothes of skins for them, right, right, leather or something like that, right? That means an animal was sacrificed to make that happen. A sacrifice that covered their shame. A sacrifice that allowed them to endure through the wilderness that they would now spend their days in. God immediately gracious. God does take sin seriously. And so because God is good and loving and perfect, he's saying the garden is no longer a place for you. Instead, we're going to wander in wilderness. And a generation that began with just disobeying God and questioning his word, and a generation later leads to murder. Generations after that, right? Tribes, nations rising up in war and racism and oppression and all sorts of horrible things that people do to one another. That's separated from that source of life and joy is misery and death. And yet God keeps renewing his promise. God keeps pursuing his people. And at one point in Genesis 12, he tells uh, Abraham, through you, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And he reiterates that promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to say, hey, it's going to come through this family that for the serpent, we said it's going to come, like a son is going to come. It's going to be through this family, through this nation. Later, um, God leads his people who've fallen into slavery in Egypt. And with a mighty hand, he takes them out through the exodus. And he sustains them for 40 years in a wilderness until they come to a promised land. And you're like, this is it. This is when things get good, right? Only cycles and generations of faithfulness and faithlessness. Faithfulness and faithlessness. And ultimately, God's people have great peaks as a nation and then great valleys as they're led back out into exile. And some even, rather than suffering exile, willingly go back to Egypt into slavery. And through it all, God keeps renewing his promises through various prophets, saying, don't worry, the day of the Lord is going to come. But your heart's going to need to be made new. This heart of stone you have that says somehow life can be lived apart from God isn't going to work. He's going to have to do a Holy Spirit surgery to give you a heart of flesh that beats for him. That there's life and light and repentance and humility. And then there's 400 years of silence. And God's people don't hear anything as nations rise and empires fall. And then... We get to Christmas, right? We just walked through several weeks of right, Luke chapter 2 and just looking at the arrival of Jesus into human history. The light shone in the darkness. 
that God does fulfill his promises. That hero of the story who's powerful, loving, and wise shows up, pursues. And the separation we feel from God, God says, my answer for that is my presence. And Jesus shows up. And Jesus grows and he lives and he begins a public ministry, and you can kind of skip ahead to the New Testament, if you will, Matthew chapter 3 and 4. I mean, there's a lot in the Old Testament, like you should read it, but as you read it, anytime you're reading things in the Old Testament, know it's all pointing to and anticipating the arrival of Jesus Christ into history. And every time you read about a dad who doesn't protect his daughter well or, or horrible men storming into other people's houses and abusing them and all these things. Just know, if you're like, that chapter is terrible, God's like, I know, and I've got a better answer, and the answer is Jesus. And Jesus arrives, and he shows up on the scene, and we see this in Matthew 3, verses 17, sorry, 13 through 17, 13 through 17. It says this, and then Jesus came up from Galilee, a very poor area, to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is where we see the beginning of the chapter of redemption, of God making things new that God promised to send a redeemer. He promised to send a savior, and he does. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, John would preach. John's this guy, he's Jesus' cousin, he's out in the wilderness, and he's telling people, hey, like, you need to repent, you need to turn from sin, you need to follow God, and you need, like, sin damages you, sin dirties you, you need to be made clean, and you need to turn from sin. And he says, behold, look, the kingdom of God is here. Because the king is here. And so Jesus sees this and he shows up and John's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Jesus, like, you're, you're the lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. You're the one whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Jesus, I should be baptized by you. But when Jesus tells you to do something, you should do it, right? So John relents. And what Jesus is doing here is you can, you can look at the life of Jesus and you can see that he was led by his parents to, to flee from danger, to go into Egypt, and he comes back. He's following the path of God's people. And he follows a part of the path of God's people at like a big kind of national, ethnic, like global-ish level. But here what Jesus is doing is he's going to be baptized. Is he's identifying with me. He's identifying with you. He's identifying with us as individuals in our story. See, John's right. Jesus doesn't need to be baptized because Jesus is sinless. Jesus doesn't need to be made clean because Jesus is clean. He's saying, let me go through and let me show you what I have for you. 
Let me, I, let me Jesus, who is sinless and perfect, identify with you, sinner, who needs to be made new, who needs to be made clean. And then as this goes on, we, we see here that God the Father says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. The Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. We see this picture of what us as Christians call the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one. And so he shows up, he begins his ministry, and immediately when he begins his ministry, Jesus faces challenges and temptations. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you're the Son of God, wait, if? Like, a couple verses ago, we just saw God the Father say, this is my, I mean, probably said it better than that. This is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. So here's Satan, back to his same tricks, just questioning what God's doing in the world. If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, Jesus, it it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Ultimately, the provision we need is not sustenance, but is the sovereignty and goodness of the Savior of the world. That we need God's word to sustain us. The devil looked on him, took him rather to the holy city, sent him on the pinnacle of the temple and said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bury you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. So now the devil's saying, hey, you want to prove that you're this great religious leader? Let me put you at the top pinnacle in front of all the other religious leaders. And when you jump off, let the angels command you and, and let there be some great signs and wonders so that everyone knows you're in charge. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put your Lord God to the test. And again, the devil took him on a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Okay, now, that, now he's just going right at it. Hey, just worship me. Just make me first. Just have me be preeminent and I'll give you all the nations of the world. They're not his to give. Satan's not the ruler of all things. He's saying, I'll give you all these glorious kingdoms. And Jesus is like, I was just in the throne room of heaven. I'm not, I'm not trading all of your earthly kingdoms that you can't even give me for the kingdom, for the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, be gone, Satan, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. See, where Adam failed in the garden, where Adam failed in a place of perfection, Jesus succeeds in a place of desolation. See, like I said, God's people, 40 years in the wilderness. The whole time, grumbling and complaining. They got fed every single day. Sometimes manna, sometimes pigeons, sometimes way too much pigeons. But every day, God gave them what they needed. Even despite their faithlessness, despite like early on being like, you know what? You know who really saved us? Some gold cow. Let's just take all of our jewelry and make that. Like 
that so many times they willingly walked away from God and yet God continued to pursue, continued to sustain. Jesus goes 40 days in the wilderness. It does say he's hungry. Like, don't think that Jesus is some like weird Yoda who like just didn't need food for 40 days. Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. And it says when Jesus is tired, he takes a break. When he's hungry, he eats. So Jesus goes 40 days without food. I mean, some of us thought we were going to do like a new diet this year and made it like three days. I told my wife, I'm like, I'm not going to do sugar in January. I mean, I'm not going to do sugar until January 6th when we go get a mocha. Jesus goes 40 days. And then in that is tempted by Satan with food, with acclaim, with power. And he answers consistently with God's word. He succeeds where we fail. See, we don't just need the death of Jesus as our sacrifice. Oh, we do. We will take communion at some point, and in that we will remember the death of Jesus in our place. His body broken for us, his blood shed for us. But we also need the life of obedience that Jesus has. That Jesus gives us his obedience and his righteousness. When it, when it says in Hebrews that he's tempted every way that we are and yet is without sin, I mean, some of those temptations happened in the wilderness and continued on. Every moment, Jesus proves faithful that because Jesus lives, we can have hope that our stories can be different today. Because Jesus died for us and sacrificed for us, we can know that our eternity is not judgment and destruction and suffering, but we can know it's an eternity of joy and light and life with God and with his people. So we have to ask ourselves, what story are we in? Are you in your own story where you're the hero? Where every victory you get to savor, but every defeat is crushing? Or are you in a story where Jesus is the hero? I mean, again, when I'm despairing, I think I know who my hero is. And it's me, but the hero's failed. It's why we fix our eyes on Jesus. It's why we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That Jesus took our defeat on the cross, in our place. Jesus is our sacrifice for our sins. And Jesus rose again and is alive and is ruling and reigning. So we can have hope for life now and life forever. That we don't look to Jesus as a martyr. We worship Jesus as our savior. We follow him as our king. And so, I mean, that's, that's where we're at today. We're in this place after Jesus' death, after Jesus' resurrection. The Bible says he ascended and, and, is, and is seated in heaven. And yet, can we just all admit things aren't perfect yet? Things aren't new yet? That, that, that for a couple thousand years, our, our best societal projects haven't necessarily yielded greater righteousness and flourishing? Oh, yeah, I mean, there's an iPhone 14. It was better than the 11, right? That's the type of progress we're able to make. And yet we're more disconnected. We're lonelier. Our food, I think, is not even as healthy. I don't know. I'll leave all alone. We can talk GMO stuff later. I just like food. Good food. See, we're in this in-between place of Jesus' arrival into history to live the life we couldn't live, to die the death we deserve, to rise again so we can have new life now, new life forever. And 
we call a second coming, his return, where we look for restoration, where he says he makes all things new. That leads us to part four, restoration. Turn your Bibles towards the end here. Revelation chapter 19. We're getting close-ish. Okay. When Jesus first comes, he comes in humility, right? Born in a manger, right? Poor Galilean peasant. But when he returns, the Bible says he returns in glory. And it says this in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flames on a fire, and his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one can know but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. John 1 tells us that Jesus Christ is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, which to strike down the nations. Those are, those are the nations opposed to God. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh, has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. See, if we're going to go to a future that's perfect, if we're going to have an eternity that is, that is constantly increasing joy, then we have to know that evil has finally been defeated. So when Jesus comes back, it says they're ready for war. And you're like, oh, I don't like war. We need war if evil is going to be vanquished. Jesus is the one who wages war. He's the one who shows up. The armies of heaven behind him, all in white. Like, they're not worried even about getting dirty. They know they're going to win. And Jesus comes in and he says, all of everything in the world that opposes that good, powerful, loving, wise God will be brought to nothing. Evil will finally be defeated. That Jesus wins in judgment. See, we don't like the word judgment, except we like justice, right? There has to be a judgment. That the story actually doesn't end perfectly for everybody. That the story ends beautifully when your faith is in the one who comes, who's faithful and true. When your allegiance is to that king. When Jesus Christ is first, rather than you are first or others somehow are first. Jesus wins and Jesus restores. Skip ahead to chapter 21. Verses 1 through 4 says this. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tears from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. He also said, Hey, write this down. For these words are trustworthy, is true. He said to me, It is done. 
I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water life without payment. So the battle's won, the field's been cleared, but, but I, I don't know about you, I don't want neutral. I don't want a void. I want, I want glory. I want things to be good and right. And he says, hey, this new city is coming down. The, the trajectory of the Bible that begins with God placing his people in a garden ultimately leading to exile after a wedding. Instead, exile has ended. God's people have been brought back. A wedding has happened where Christ and his bride, the church, are reunited. And instead of being placed in a garden they didn't create, they're placed in a city they didn't build. And he says, hey, I know you're thirsty. I know you're mourning. I know you've got tears. I know that life has been hard. I know this world has beaten you down. I know cancer diagnoses are terrible. I know suicide is awful. I know miscarriages break your heart. I know job losses cause grief. All those things are going to be done. You're not going to mourn anymore. You're not going to have tears anymore because there's no more sadness because there's no more death, because there's no more sin. And if you, if you think, hey, we've been in the wilderness for so long, God, we just want to be satisfied. We're thirsty. He says, I've got living water for you that you can drink deeply from without price, it says, because Jesus Christ paid the price on the cross with his blood. We can drink deeply of something that actually satisfies. The old is gone. It says the sea is no more. That, that doesn't mean there's no ocean. Like, like, like if you think heaven's like in the middle of New Mexico, you got it wrong. When it says the sea is no more, um, for God's people that time, the sea represented chaos, right? It represented like it's deep. We don't know. There's monsters, you know, whatever. It represented where enemies would come from. It represented where storms would show up in a minute and, and just ruin everything. He's saying, no more chaos, no more threats, no more storms. Break out the beach chairs. Get the little drink with the little umbrella. In fact, I don't think New Mexico's anywhere near heaven. Okay. Last few verses, we're getting close. We actually are this time. Jesus also renews our life. He's given us a new city, but he's going to give us an eternal life. Revelation 22, last chapter of the book, says this in 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. The source of life is Jesus Christ. Through the middle of the streets of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. And they'll see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. And they'll need no light or lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. I love this vision of walking through this amazing city with a river, with trees of life all over the place. And just when you're like, you've been in heaven for a while and you're walking with the Lord and you're drinking from that water and you're eating from that tree and you're like, mmm, I have had a lot from that season. It says, guess what? There's another season coming and another season coming and another season coming. 
That's, I think that's why we like seasons. I think that's why we like the beginning of seasons. Like, oh, summer's here, yay. Oh, winter's here, Christmas, yeah. You know, peppermint, yay, right? And then now I'm like, don't give me peppermint. And miss me with pumpkin spice, goodness gracious. That's fall, right? The, the, our eternity and our life with God's going to be one of constantly anticipating something better. And that source is going to be Jesus. And that life that we live isn't apart from God, but with God and with his people. This is the reign for eternity. Like, we're going to be participating the way we were originally called to lead, to love, to cultivate, to build, to enjoy. And then the last verses of the Bible say this. How we respond. 20 and 21. He who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Let it be so. Jesus says, I'm coming. Amen. Let it be so. And then John says, come Lord Jesus. Like now would be good. Now would be fantastic. What? I don't know about you, when I, when I grew up, I had a really under-realized view of what heaven and eternity was like. So like when I was a kid and teenager, I was, I, was like, I was like, well, I don't, like if you God could wait to come back until I can like get married and be with like a, a girl, that'd be great. No, come, come Lord Jesus, now. See, it's this longing. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen, it says. The right now, it is okay for us to be longing for something better. Goodness gracious, I long for something better. You wanna, if, if right now you're really satisfied with how things are going, um, let me just walk you down the hallway of our church that had the pipe that exploded. Smell the smells. See the sights. It will make you long for heaven. Like, I want all that stuff to be done. I don't want to be constantly building a building and, and having it torn down and rebuild and all that stuff. I just want to talk to people about Jesus. And actually, I, I want to be out of a job because I want Jesus to be back. So where are you in the story? Who are you in the story? Because right now, if you are first, if you're preeminent, then you're one tragedy away from everything falling apart. But if Jesus is first... If he's preeminent, then no matter what happens, you can have joy. You can have peace. And I say this as somebody who, I know I said this a few weeks ago, I'm kind of up and down. Like, I'm not always just walking around with big joy on my face. I constantly have to have my eyes and my heart redirected back to Jesus. And we do that through his word. And we do that from people that love us and know us, that love the Lord. We do that in gospel community together. That's part of why we gather together to be reminded that the kingdom of God is bigger than just what's going on in our own lives. See, we worship Jesus now, practicing for the next chapter. We don't despair in this chapter because we know it's not the last chapter. And we have hope now that He's given us a mission until he returns to, to tell more and more people this story about the hero who's Jesus. That faith is looking forward to something better while, while still being patient. I hate patient. While we wait for hope to be realized. So we remember that God in Jesus is good, loving, powerful, wise, 
We rest in his return in a new tomorrow. And until Jesus comes back, all of us enjoy life with Jesus and tell anyone who will listen to simply trust Jesus. Let's pray.